0: So would you do me a favor and stand as a sign of respect for the reading of the word? We're going to read from the book of Matthew, verses 21 to 35. Then Peter came to him and asked, Lord, how often should I forgive someone who sins against me? Seven times? No, not seven times, Jesus replied, but 70 times seven. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven can be compared to a king who decided to bring his accounts up to date with uh, with servants who had borrowed money from him. In the process, one of the debtors was brought in who owed him millions of dollars. He couldn't pay, so his master ordered that he be sold, along with his wife and children and everything he owned, to pay the debt. But the man fell down before his master and begged him, Please be patient with me, and I will pay it all. Then his master was filled with pity for him, and he released him and forgave his debt. But when the man left the king, he went to a fellow servant who owed him... Uh, a few thousand dollars and grabbed him by the throat and demanded instant payment. His fellow servant fell down before him and begged for a little more time. Be patient with me and I will pay it, he pleaded. But his creditor wouldn't wait. He had the man arrested and put in prison until the debt could be paid in full. When some of the other servants saw this, they were very upset. They went to the king and told him everything That had happened. Then the king called the man he had forgiven and said, You evil servant, I forgave you that tremendous debt because you pleaded with me. Shouldn't you have mercy on your fellow servant just as I had mercy on you? And the angry king sent the man to prison to be tortured until he had paid his entire debt. That's what my heavenly father will do to you if you refuse to forgive your brothers and sisters from your heart. So this is our last message in this... There we go. In this uh, discourse, we've made it through... Oh, you may be seated. I'm sorry. You may be seated. (coughs) Make you stand for the whole sermon. I have to. Um, uh, So we've been through the Sermon on the Mount, the missional discourse, the parabolic discourse, and we're now almost done with the ecclesiological discourse. What We call the discourse on the church. And these are... uh, you know, these are the five big sermons that Matthew kind of uses to divide his book up. I think they were kind of the the kind of keynote spaces. Jesus will go and do some things, do some miracles and preach a sermon. You know, travel around, do some miracles, preach a sermon, travel around. I think Matthew kind of put it together that way to kind of mimic the five books of the Torah. He was writing to a primarily Jewish audience, uh, we believe, because uh, he stresses a lot of really Jewish themes in, in speaking of the Messiah. And so I think he... Uh, I think Matthew kind of intentionally, the Jews were really into numbers. Numbers meant a lot. And so I think having five sections would have been important um, to Matthew. And and as I was looking over this one tonight, the struggle about preaching is I get, you know, 45 to 90 minutes, you know, to get my point. No, (laughs) Judy got it. Uh, To get my, uh, uh, I'm surprised the kids ministry didn't hear it from out there. Boo! Um, to get my point across, which makes you take fairly small bites, you know, because if, if you take too big of pieces of Scripture, you wind up missing some things. And every verse is important and you want to spend quality time with every little nuance. But because of that, you tend to break it up quite a bit. I was kind of looking through this passage. Um, I kind of played around with it um, this week and timed myself reading it and at a conversational tone. It only took me four minutes to read this whole sermon. And so this isn't a very long sermon. You know, it, it doesn't take long to, to get through. And, and yet the New King James, which I study in, um, breaks. they put five pericope headings in a four-minute sermon. They, they break it into five different places. They're like, you've got the who's the greatest in the kingdom. And then immediately after that, you've got offenses. And what happens when people... And then you've got the, the offending brother. Uh, right under that, under the lost sheep right under that, and then the offending brother, and then the evil servant. So somehow I take a four-minute message and break it into uh, five different pericopes, and I don't think Jesus had ADD. I don't think he was like, squirrel, you know, just got distracted and changed directions that fast. I think these all flow together. I think this is a fairly fluid thought that that Jesus is making, and they all tie together in context. So what I'm going to try to do tonight is maybe hold on to some of that context. We're going to try to kind of pull things together as we look at this final thing. And we started into this last week because last week we talked about what to do with an offending brother. This is a passage we're all pretty familiar with. We quote it a lot of times. If someone offends you, you go to him one-on-one and you, and you confront him and, and see how that goes. And then if that doesn't work, you take two or three people. Uh, I believe it it's just doesn't mean you're rolling in with a posse and you're going to like, now we're going to confront you as a team and do an intervention. I think it gets, means get some counsel. Get some people who are outside the thing and can tell you if, if you're both hearing what each other say you're hearing and if, and if things are, 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 are being communicated well and, and, and whatnot. And, but what's funny is, is we always treat this passage by itself. We always say this is how you handle an offending brother. There's, almost every Bible has a pericope title above it so that we can treat it that way. But we read it last week in its context and it looks like this. I'm not even fitting on the screen anymore need to tweak something. And if you should find it, we're talking about the lost sheep here. If, If you should find it, assuredly, I say to you, he rejoices more over that sheep than over the 99 that did not go astray. Even so, it is not the will of your father who is in heaven that one of these little ones should perish. Moreover, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he hears you, you have gained your brother. Like this concept of an offending brother flows straight from the lost sheep story, which totally changes the ethos of the whole thing. If if you look at it in terms of this is how I get my offenses taken care of. When I get offended, when I get hurt, this is how I get justice. You know, that's a whole different attitude than when someone sins against me, they're lost to me in that moment. You know, cause, and this is something we, we forget sometimes when we talk about the lost sheep parable. We kind of act like the lost sheep are, are these kind of wandering um, you know, sheep that are out on their own and lonely and sad and they want nothing more than to get back you know, to the fold. But in reality, in real life, these are sinners. These are willful sinners that, that offended their God. And, and, and God has a heart. These, you know, these aren't people who, you know, are like dying to get back to God and, and and God won't let them. These are people who have turned their back on God and God's like, no, that's not good enough. I, I won't let that happen. I, I'm going to save you even though you don't want to be saved. I, I'm going to reach out to you and show you grace. That's, that's what grace is. You're not even looking for. It. So, so when we talk lost sheep, we've got to remember these are offenders. These are offenders. And so when Jesus turns and goes, your offending brother... He, he's using a similar language. He's talking about someone who's lost. And we're going to talk about the way they heard this here in a minute. But Jesus kind of flows from this lost sheep thing. Um, there's another contextual thing in a second. But he, he flows from this into the story of this wicked servant. And we're all pretty familiar with this. It's, it's a story of this servant who owes his, the king millions of dollars. Millions of dollars. And, and the, he goes, the king's calling his debts due and and so he he calls him before him and he and he can't pay it he doesn't have any of it and so he goes. Okay, well, sell him. And this was a common practice. You would sell him into indentured servitude. Somebody might pay a flat fee, and they would get an indentured servant for so many years for what they would pay. And he knows there's no way a, a husband, wife, kid, and possessions are going to get him millions of dollars. But he's going to sell him for whatever he can get for him. You know, cash in what you can. Better than continue to lose money. So he's going to sell him what he. What is good business? It's a good business passage. So he's going <laughs> to. So he's going to. He's going to sell him for what he can and take it. And the guy falls down. And, uh, and says, please, if you'll give me a little more time, you'll give me just a little more time, I'll pay everything. Which I absolutely love. And this is what jumped out at me about this passage. Is, and I don't even know what to do with this yet. It, it, it's, it's fairly new. I'm processing it, but I'm going to throw it out there so you can all process it with me. But grace always seems to be surprising. It always seems to be surprising. He's not asking to have his debt removed. That's not even on the, on the plate. He just wants more time. He just wants more time. And in comes this this scandal, this shock of grace. Like, not only am I going to give you more time, I'm going to wipe it clean. That's not even what he's looking for. And we see a similar thing in the prodigal son story. He just wants to come back as a servant. He just wants to come back and just say, that my, my father's servants eat well, they have a place to stay. I just, I'll just go back and do that. And then comes this surprising grace of a robe and a ring and, and, and a fatted calf. and And so... I say that to say sometimes we count on grace, like I can do whatever I want because there's grace, and i I don't know if if that works in the scripture, grace is always like i say I'm just processing this, but in the in the scripture, grace is always shocking it's always i was I had no idea that God was this good, and so we want to be real careful with grace. I don't really know where to take that yet. I'm going to continue to chew on it. But what I love in this story is the guy's not even looking for this much blessing. He's like, And it comes out of nowhere, which I think is the way grace usually works, is it it blindsides you with goodness. Like you, 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 think, you think you're asking for this much. God, I just need this much. And God says, I'm just going to overwhelm you. Um, and that seems to be the way grace comes in when you're not looking. But anyway... That was a side note because I couldn't get it out of my head. Um, so this guy begs for more time and, the, and the, the king just wipes his debt clear. And the guy goes back out and, and, and immediately sees somebody who owes him a couple grand. And he, and he starts, puts the guy in a chokehold and like, I want my money. And I think, personally, I, I don't think the guy had given up on the idea of paying back the master. I, I think I think he accepted the grace to an extent, but I think... What most likely happened, if you got a servant who owes a, a, a couple million dollars, chances are he had invested some of that money in other people, given some away, probably invested in some businesses. They probably all went bad. I can't, if he's still a servant, he's not spending two million on cars and boats and, and vacation homes, or he would have been able to cash that stuff in. Chances are he had given some money and loaned some money to other people. And so I think he's still trying to pay the master back. And the reason I think that is because I think we do that. I think we have an encounter with God and we have this overwhelming grace and, and God just wipes our slate clean and, and, we're, and, and we're amazed by his grace. And then we turn around and, and in some weird way still try to pay him back for it. And, and, and a lot of times we do it by trying to make everybody else holy. Like we go out and choke out our brother and like, you got you to gotta straighten Like God has shown me his grace. You got to live better. Like, like we, and almost like we're trying to say, because I love the King so much, I want everyone else to pay their debts too. Like I, it's it's weird, but we all kind of do that. We have this tendency to our response to grace is to go, okay, now that I have grace, I have to go earn it, and I have to go get that two thousand so I can pay the Master back who just wiped my debt clean. It's kind of a weird thing, but I, I feel like we have a tendency to do that. We have a tendency to to respond to grace by trying to earn it afterwards, um, which is uh, is not appropriate, but he chokes the guy out. It gets back to the master. And, uh, and the master's obviously uh, furious and, and doesn't take it well. And this is a great pericope. This is a great parable. It's a good standalone teaching. Has a great point. Easy to follow. Nice action point at the end. This thing would be great all by itself. Except it's not all by itself. It comes from a verse that, uh, that ties it back in. If you look at where it comes from, Well, that was supposed to be up while I was talking. If you look at where... I don't know. I'm going to get there. Something happened. There it is. (laughs) It doesn't follow my thing. So who knows what's going to happen. This is going to be exciting. Um, uh, Peter... Starts this little thing because Peter out of, out of nowhere goes then Peter came to him and said Lord how often shall my brother sin against me and I forgive him up to seven times and, th- and this seems to come out of nowhere immediately before this P- uh, Jesus is teaching about confronting an offending brother and he says "You know, if he, and, if, and if he won't even hear the church then treat him like a sinner and a tax collector and, and put him out and Peter walks up and goes uh, so how many times am I supposed to forgive my brother? Which seems really weird and out of context. Except that this shows you what Peter heard in those four steps that Jesus laid out. So Jesus is like, if a brother offends you, you go to him, blah blah. blah. And if and if and if that doesn't work, you take some more people, let every word get established, make sure everybody has, understands what's going on. And if and if he and if he repents, then you gain your brother. If that doesn't happen, maybe take him before the leadership of the church and see. You know, maybe you can get some. Uh, some more stuff. And if that doesn't work, blah, blah, blah. And what Peter hears is, dear God, how many times do I have to forgive him? Like, so what Peter hears is, if I do this, I'm going to wind up having to forgive this guy. Like, he doesn't, what we hear is, what steps do I have to go through before I can excommunicate somebody? Like, what steps do I have to go through before I can kick him out of my life and be done with him? Peter doesn't hear that. Peter hears, if I do that, I'm eventually going to have to forgive this guy. And then what? Then what happens after I forgive him? Do I just let him do it again? Like, so I go to my brother. I confront him, he, he repents. I have my brother back. I forgive him. Now what? How many times do I have to do this thing? And this is because they're in a Jewish context. Like in a Jewish context, taking four steps before you excommunicate somebody is huge. That would have been unheard of to them. They were a one strike and you're out kind of culture. And, and this was because they lived in, in rabbinical Judaism. And sometimes we forget when we read the Old Testament, that Judaism has a huge dividing point. Before they went into captivity, they had a temple, they had sacrifices, they had a land. And so there was this built-in grace in the Torah, where if you made a mistake, there was a sacrifice for it. And you knew what to do to get right with God again. And, and so suddenly they're taken into captivity and they no longer have a land. They no longer have a temple. They no longer have sacrifices. Because there was also this little rule in the Torah that said, don't make sacrifices just anywhere. They didn't want people making sacrifices in their backyard to God. You had to go to the temple in the land to make sacrifices. So they can't make sacrifices while they're in captivity. And so suddenly they don't have a land. They don't have sacrifices. They don't have any way to deal with their mistakes. And so this is when the, the rabbi the, came to light. This is when the rabbi shows up on the scene and they did this thing that they call putting a fence around the Torah, which was they made extra rules to say that way if you fail one of these, you still haven't broken Torah. Because they believed, now that we have no sacrifices, you cannot sin. You, you absolutely cannot sin. You can't risk sinning. Because if you sin, you're out. And so they literally, because they didn't have these sacrifices, had a one strike, you're out rule. And, and so this is what they were used to. And so Peter, when he hears Jesus say, if your brother offends you and sins against you, go to him face to face. And and if he repents, you've gained your brother. Peter hears forgiveness. And Peter's like, how many times do I have to do this? Do I have to forgive seven times? And this is a pretty common thing in that day. They had two big theological camps, two major rabbis from a couple generations before this, that everybody kind of fell under. The conservative's name was Shammai. And he was the hard line, don't ever break Torah you know, capital punishment type and Hillel, who was the more forgiving gentle. And so most people fell under either Shammai or Hallel and Hallel's advice was you have to forgive someone seven times before you can excommunicate him, And so he was the most extreme person anybody had ever heard of. Very few people went as far as Hallel. And so Peter feeling like he knew Jesus pretty well was like, so how far do we take this? this forgiveness thing. Do we go all the way to Hillel? Do we go all the way to seven times? And Jesus obviously says, no, not seven times. I tell you, some say 77, some say 490. The Greek's a little vague, but, um, but Peter hears something here that that's not necessarily in the writing. When, when Jesus is talking about what you have to do before you can excommunicate somebody, Peter's like, nobody's going to go that far they're going to repent and then I have to forgive them. It, you know how when sometimes you can hear what's not being said? Like when I walk in the door and Esther's putting the pots on the stove a little harder than she needs to and I'm like, um, are you okay? And she's like, I'm fine. See, that? that's what she says. That's not really what I hear. And so that's kind of what's going on here. Jesus is saying some things. Peter's hearing something totally different. And so Peter says, you say excommunicate, what I hear is forgive. what I see happening is forgive and so that 's fine, but how far do I take this and and what happens is uh, is Jesus basically challenges his percep like what he 's looking at jesus Jesus changes the way he 's kind of approaching uh, this whole thing so we 're going to go back and try to pull some of the rest of this into context. I kind of rambled and got off my notes here, so you're going to have to give me a second. Um, so when Peter's asking how many times, it almost goes back to that first, that very first question that started this four-minute sermon, which is, who is the greatest? Who is the greatest? So so from right off the bat, the the question that Jesus is wrestling with is, what are the ranks here? What's the ranking system? Who can I... Push out. Who can I challenge? And and Jesus this whole time has been saying, you're seeing things all wrong. If you're looking, you're looking at it all wrong. Jesus uh, shifted the perspective in the first part. Remember he said, you know, nope, it's upside down. The people that are on bottom, I'm saying they're the ones you want to make sure you don't offend because the whole cast is flipped. And then he, he drew that immediately into the lost sheep. Basically, saying, when you're asking who's my favorite, I'm saying, I'm here to save lost. I'm not even thinking favorites. I'm here to save what is lost, to heal what is broken. And so, in context, uh, we're going to go. He says in the first one, Assuredly, I say unto you, unless you're converted and become as a little child, you will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. Moreover, that's, so that's in the first little chunk when he's talking about who's the greatest. Then when he talks about uh, the, uh, the offending brother, he says, moreover, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him your fault between you and him alone. If he hears you, you have gained your brother. He says, the master of the servant was moved with compassion, released him and forgave the debt and all this ties in so so in all these things he's he's saying unless you have a heart change right here and look at somebody who's who's lower than you and that, and and you're and you're you see yourself in them you become like them you can't enter unless you forgive your brother right here on earth you can't uh you you can't really go to god and 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 have the same thing and he says the master on the servant forgave his servant right here And, and it all comes back to this verse in 18 and I think this is kind of the key verse of this whole thing he says assuredly I say to you whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven and we talked about this last week a little bit that we have a tendency to this verse gets used for a million different reasons. I mean, I mean the Catholics use it to, to basically say if you get kicked out of the Catholic Church, you are also going to hell. They have the right to bind you and loose you on earth and that would bind you and loose you in heaven. It's one of their primary verses. And, and we use it to, to, to say if we, if we bind spiritual things on earth, we bind them in heaven. And, and I always wrestle with that because when we say that, we're, we're not really binding them on earth. We're binding them with our prayers in heaven and that doesn't feel right. And and so what I think is happening in this verse, I think what Jesus is saying is what you do here matters. It has a real effect in heavenly places. When you forgive someone face to face and you maintain and you bind a relationship and you hold something together, it has a real spiritual power to it. Something real in heaven changes when you do things right on earth. And, And I can't fully explain it, but but Jesus in this whole thing that we call this the church discourse, the, the discourse on the way the church works. And I think the main point he's coming to is the way we do this releases some spiritual power. If we do it right, like, and, and when we allow relationships to just get broken and fall apart, we lose something. We lose a power to advance the kingdom of God. And when you look at the book of Acts, when all these crazy miracles are happening people's shadows are healing people and the church just seems to have this power and we look back sometimes and we're like, what did they have? What, what did they have access to that seems to have gotten lost? In chapter after chapter, it ends with, and they were in one accord and they broke bread together and they were in, there was no division among them. And then we've got the first chance division shows up. Ananias and Sapphira walk in and, it's, and there's just almost this this crazy resistance to we cannot allow division like, and it seems to be something in that unity that was, that was there something in the way they bound themselves together, released a power. And, and I, like I say, I can't explain it, but I think that's the key verse that's going on here. Whatever you do on earth matters. The way you treat those less fortunate than you matters. Jesus he said it in another passage at the end of Matthew where, where he goes, you did all these great things for me coming into my Father's kingdom. And they're like, when did we do these great things? When you did them to the least of these, you did them unto me. What was happening on earth was happening in heaven. There was, there's a direct connection here that I think is super powerful. That, that we, we have to in some form get this right. These things matter. We can't just blow off the way we do things, we can't just work our job however we want to work our job and expect this heavenly blessing because because we we we're, just because we're children of God. He's like, no, what you do on earth affects the way you do things in heaven, and it's not a a grace thing. It's not like he doesn't love you. It's it's not like that. It's just. What we do here matters. What we bind here gets bound in heaven. What we lose here, and I don't think he just picked those two things specifically. He could have said the way you work here affects heaven. The way you treat your wife here affects heaven. The way you treat your kids here affects heaven. The way you forgive other people and, and, and all these things has a real effect in heavenly places. So I think in this, in this parable where he's like, and, and I struggle with it because I don't think It just doesn't seem to fit with the rest of context of Scripture that if if you have some unforgiveness, you know God's completely not going to forgive you and you're going to go to hell. I I just don't feel like that holds up with the weight of Scripture. I still think it's terrifying and I don't like to play with unforgiveness. This passage honestly scares me to death and if I sense some unforgiveness in my heart, I repent immediately because I don't like to play with that and I try hard not to wrestle with that issue. But I don't think it means if you've got unforgiveness, you go to hell. But I do think... That when we, whatever we're, this stuff, when we don't forgive somebody from our heart, it affects something between us and God. It affects the flow and the movement between us and God. And and like I say, I can't explain it mathematically. I can't say this is exactly how it logically works. All I know is Jesus is what you bind here gets bound up there. What you loose here gets loose there. When you have offenses and you loose them and release them, I feel like it opens up some kind of, door between you and God in a, in a different way and, and I, I think what we do here really matters so this discourse finally this this as we look at this whole thing kind of together I feel like uh, it's about some fundamental relationships and we, we talk about this a lot um, I think when we look at all four of these passages here go back for a second Assuredly, I say unto you, unless you are converted, unless you are converted, if your brother sins against you, the master released the servant And whatever you do on earth. Those four things look familiar to anybody? Something we talk about quite a bit. These are the four broken relationships from Genesis we talk about quite a bit the book of Genesis, when, when sin entered the world, it, it, things broke in four different ways. Immediately they were ashamed. They felt shame for the first time. They'd never felt that before. Something in their relationship to themselves had altered. They looked down and, and were no longer comfortable in their own skin. Something had, had broken in the way they saw themselves. And we still wrestle with that. And then they looked at each other and they were like, she made me eat it. And and this unity that was there a chapter ago where he was like, she's flesh in my flesh and bone in my bone. Suddenly there's a division there and they're they're wanting to create a separation where once there was unity and saying, no, it's her that did it, not me. And and there's this thing. And and when God showed up, they hid in the bushes and and were like, no, this is, uh, uh, I don't want to be in the presence of God right now. That had never happened before. Something had broken in their relationship with God. And finally, God said the ground's going to be cursed for you. The, your relationship with earth is going to change. Your vocation's going to be hard. You're going to have to sweat, you know, to, to feed your family. And, and so all four of these areas got broken, and I believe reconciliation, and I think one of the church's main jobs is to bring healing to all four of those relationships. And I think what Jesus does in this sermon is he says, first you have to change. You're, you have to see yourself different. You have to see yourself the way God sees you. The, and, and that means the duality. You have to see yourself as a sinner, as, as, as the bottom, so that God can show grace on you and you can recognize who you are redeemed in God. But, but it changes the way you see yourself. It changes the way you relate to other people. You can't just walk around in unforgiveness anymore. You can't just, you can't just cut people out of your life anymore. That's, that's not kingdom. You can't just go, no, too many times. She hurt me too many times. I'm done with that. I'm done. I'm doing, I'm finished with that. That's not kingdom. You don't get to do that. We don't get to do that anymore. It changes our relationship with God, obviously, because he's the one saying, no, I've, I've cleaned the slate. You're free. You're free to walk in my power. You're free to walk in my presence. The veil is torn. You're, you're able to just come right in to my presence. And finally, it changes our relationship with with this, with the earth, with, with what we do here, with our vocation, with our movement, that, that what we do here suddenly has, we don't have to fight against it the same way. Suddenly, what we do here has an impact in heaven, it has a real movement. So, I think, I think God is, is in this passage challenging all four broken relationships. And He's saying that's the church's job is to bring redemption to all four of these redemption to our relationship with ourselves that we see ourselves differently, the way God sees us, our relationship to others, our relationship to God, and our relationship to to what we do, our vocation, our our mission. So how do we respond to this? This is the end of our fourth discourse. This is is Jesus' how how do I respond to this? And and the hard thing about these passages where Jesus loves to go beneath the surface and He loves to go... um, into the heart is the reality is see I'm, I'm, a, I'm very mechanical but I don't, I don't know how, how to figure out what's wrong with things That's the diagnostics is my biggest I can take anything apart and put it back together and I've had friends who you can pull up in a car and they can just listen to it and I, yeah it's this and this and this and this and once I know that I can fix it I can fix almost anything I just can't ever figure out why something's not working like the diagnostics is the hardest part usually the taking apart and putting together is easy I think that's sometimes the hardest part about Jesus' sermons is they're, they're so deep in the heart that half the time we, we know something's broken and we don't know what to do about it. We don't know how to, like, we don't know what it is. We don't even know where to look half the time. I was, I was up here praying a couple of weeks ago and I had been kind of sloppy with my words um, about another pastor um, for a while and And it wasn't like I was ever super offensive i I supported I support what he does. I was just kind of condescending, and I was up here praying and and uh and the Holy Spirit just like ripped my heart open it was like that that's inappropriate you can't ask for a blessing as a pastor if that's the way you talk about other pastors and i I repented, and I spent the next fifteen minutes praying for him and his ministry and his family, and just praying that God would just pour blessing out on him and reward every little bit of work he does' and, and I had no idea that was in my heart, no clue, like clueless that I that 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 had been an offense until God revealed it to me. And I, and I think the I think the only way to respond to some of these passages when they dive into things like unforgiveness and they dive into things like how you how you look at yourself, who's the greatest, how you look at other people that that you don't want to look down on, but you sometimes you just do, and and how you deal with. Uh, you know with with other with your relationship to the lost and and how easily yeah you would go chase your sheep if it got away but but you do you don't even give a thought to other lost things you know and and so when we get into these these passages our i think our only response is to ask the holy spirit into our hearts and go just search me and know me like just just dig in and and bring stuff to the surface gently please that was actually my prayer after god had shown me that what what I had in my heart and I repented it felt so good and felt so like clean to get that off my chest I was like God what else is in there bring it up but bring it up g- gently I actually said those words like real gently don't overwhelm me I can't take much but like little by little pull that stuff out of me I don't want that stuff in me and so when I look at the, the discourse on the church and I, and I see him saying them asking who's the greatest and he's like until you turn to the people on bottom and you see yourself in them and you know and I'm like yes god I want to do that and then all of a sudden I hear something on the television I'm like man those people oh god you know and it's and I see that that's in there and you know and then he talks about the lost and and you know and I go and do what I want to do all the time and I don't even think what impact is this going to have on the lost. You know, could I, could I be doing more to reach out to the lost? And I hear him talk about offending brothers and, and going to them face to face when it's so much easier, so much easier to just go, you know, I, I don't even worry about it. I don't, even want, to, I don't, want, to, I don't want to build more relationship. Because like, if I went to him and said, hey, this bothered me, you know, it's hard, it takes time, but it might deepen a relationship. You might find that, you know, when you go to them, they're like, I'm so sorry I hurt you, and blah, blah, And then suddenly you have more relationship. But it's so easy just to go, eh, not worth it. Like, you know, I don't care what the Bible says. We don't say that, but that's kind of what we're saying. I don't really care if the Bible says I'm supposed to go to him. I'm just going to forget about it and kind of hold that person at arm's length. Like, it's so easy to do that. And And it's so easy to take the grace of God and then suddenly go to someone else and go, you need to pay. You're not doing what you should be doing. And so... All I can say after this kind of a discourse is to go, God, search my heart. Just search my heart. Here's my heart, Lord. We're getting ready to sing a song that basically uses those words. Here's my heart, Lord. Speak into me what's broken, what what I need, what what you want to pull out. Because I believe what we do here matters. I believe those things matter. I I, I don't think it's just an exercise, you know, that we do. I think I think when we have these opinions of people when we have these attitudes when we have this unforgiveness when we have this judgmentalism this affects our lives I really believe it matters I believe when we let those things go it it somehow frees up something in heaven and and, and I I feel like as we've been studying this this discourse study and we've been looking at these sermons of Jesus we keep coming back to the kingdom of God we keep coming back to the kingdom of heaven that Jesus seems to just be Coming back and, and hammering this idea, and and I think I think this stuff is what the kingdom is about. I really think that to advance God's kingdom, to move God's kingdom, these things matter and they're important. So as we close, as we go to the table, we're going to sing a song, and it's just going to say, "Here's my heart, Lord. Speak what's true." And and I just want that to be our prayer, that um, that from the beginning of this sermon to the end wherever we fall whether it's the way we look at people the way we look at the lost the way we handle people who have hurt us or the way we we accept the grace of God but refuse to give it you know wherever we fall wherever that we just say God if there's any of that in me if there's any of that in me go in and search it out and pull it up so I can repent uh, and that we would repent joyfully because it does feel fantastic when you've got something in your heart and you get to let it go and you get to release it. so.